the central focus of why we get together as God's people on Sunday is to sit at Jesus's table with him as a family. That Jesus podcast. I have a friend who's really into the Appalachian Trail. He's hiked large portions of it and hopes to hike the entire trail at some point. When I asked him what he enjoys most about the trail life, his answer was somewhat jolting. It's the community, he said. If you're a through hiker, you're in the community. It doesn't matter what your religion, ethnicity, or cultural background is. If you have the love for nature and commitment required to spend months on the trail, you're part of the family. The reason this caught my attention is because my friend is also an engaged member of a very conservative church. However, the community he found on the trail apparently was more close-knit than what the body of Christ had to offer. Jesus of Nazareth said that the world would recognize his apprentices by their love for each other. He claimed that the unity between his followers would convince the world that God had sent him. But when I look out over the church today, I see anything but unity. I also don't feel the same level of close relationships with other believers that the New Testament seems to envision. I decided to talk to my friend Matthew Milioni about this dilemma. Matthew helped start a network of house churches in Boston and several other cities around the world. Let's see what he has to say. So you and your wife were both members of a gang when you were young. Uh, was there an element of like tight-knit community in that gang that helped influence you to join it? Yeah, for sure there was. We, um, uh, When you say gang, it's, it, 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 um, it's not even typical for the gangs. Uh, the skinheads in particular, I mean... I feel like they're a subset even of gang life because they're very Western European. They're very, they're white gangs essentially. So mm-hmm. they, a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of violence. And I find that those, you know, when you're in these, like, like the, I don't mean to make too much of an analogy, but when you're in the military, you know, this brotherhood that gets formed and the same kind of thing I think is happens in, in, in those kinds of scenarios as well, when you're in dangerous environments and you're risking your life for each other, it creates bonds that are are deep. Um, so we certainly had, I, I was a bit of an anomaly in my crew in that I had a, a normal, well-functioning family, but I was the rare exception to the rule. Most of the people, the only family that those people had was each other, was us. Yeah. 
I had ostracized my family to live that life, but I did have a family somewhere that would have been glad to have me around if I had wanted to be. Yeah. But I, so all of us certainly drew together as kind of like our only, our only associations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you've shared your testimony on other platforms about how you, you became a follower of Jesus. But I'm curious, when you first started attending Christian gatherings, were those same close relationships present? It was one of the first things that bothered me as a Christian. Eric and I talked about it in our earliest days. You know, I I went back to the Baptist church because it's where my roots were when we were first converted. And um, and one of our one of our early kind of like misgivings, one of the first things that set us off was was the lack of exactly that. You know, I'd go to I'd go to meeting. We were young and zealous. And so, you know, I'm the first one there and the last one to leave. But mm-hmm. but then, you know, at uh, at 12 o'clock or 1130, when everybody's filtered out and I'm the last one standing around and everybody's going home for a nap or a meal and Eric and I are just there kicking rocks, like, what what are we supposed to do with ourselves? Like, because I think because we had ostracized my family and Erica's family wasn't at a place where we could have relationships with, we were looking to reconnect our familial sensibilities to the church. Yeah. And it was hard for me from the earliest of times there when I was first converted that, you know, I talked about Brother Bob. I called him Brother Bob when I saw him at that meeting on Sunday or on Wednesday evening. But I didn't know Brother Bob from Adam. Like it was just mm-hmm. a title. It wasn't a description. And so that that sense of, um, of being like of falling short of, of what it should be was goes all the way back to my earliest days as a new convert. Yeah. So when, when we read, you know, in the book of acts about the first Christians, there's a lot of descriptions of very close fellowship with each other. So I'm curious from your perspective, when and why did the church lose that close fellowship that they experienced back then? Well, I I think that I would put it off on a few things. I think that that sense of persecution drew the church together in the earliest of the, of church life. I also think that, that the small organic structures that the church was first, first born with were conducive to an environment where people were sharing lives, sharing food at a table, and in each other's lives at regular interval, as you watch the hierarchy structures of the church build, especially in 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 the Nicene era when Christianity becomes legalized, you know it's only the Edict of Milan, if I remember correctly, the Edict of Milan that legalizes Christianity is like 314 or 318, and it's in the 320s when the Council of Nicaea happens. So the church goes from being an outlaw religion to the emperor presiding over the main convocation of the church within just about 10 years. And so it's a radical breakneck speed that the church is changing and updating. And I think that that new, that new ability to have buildings, to call people in, to not be in the, to be kind of hiding in the shadows and in the, in the living rooms and the courtyards of the church Mm-hmm. caused a separation. And I, I don't know that I'd put it all on that, but I think that's a huge epoch shift for the church. Yeah. yeah. 
So what are some Christian groups throughout history uh, that have kept that crucial ingredient of the faith alive, and, and how did they do that? Well, I, I think when you re- the closer you get back to that early phase of church life, the more likely that is. So yeah. breakout groups throughout history have kind of returned to our roots where it's back to the living room, back to the table. The Mennonites mm-hmm. were certainly that way. The Hutterites and their and their having of things in common. The German Baptists, these Anabaptist uh, radical Reformation people, certainly were rekindling that home focused uh, space for the church. Um, I think there's some there's some reason to believe that the the early Waldensians were that way. But I would say generally, wherever you see a new breakout form of Christianity that's splitting off of state church or or large hierarchical structures, you, you see a necessary return back to the home. Now, what's, what's interesting is that when, when, Christian, when that, that movement grows and catalyzes and crystallizes, the impulse is to shift. So for, for us here at Boston, we very much wanted to return, very consciously wanted to return to that living room-focused Christianity. But the problem is, it's a good problem to have, but when the church begins to grow, you don't fit in the living room anymore. And so our, our idea when we first came to Boston was that we knew this would be the, 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 the growing pain that would be hard to accommodate. What do we do when there's more people than fit in the living room? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's important for us to fit in the living room because you can have deep familial kinds of relationships with about as many people as fit in a living room. And so when there's more people than fit in the living room, what do you do? There's only two options. You either get another living room and have two meetings or you get a bigger space and you don't all fit in the living room anymore. And so we've chosen, we're uh, actually, we just started our fourth congregation here in Boston. And that was our, our, our premise when we came is that the church should grow in these little cellular community clusters so that each congregation can keep that intimate, authentic, uh, communal feel and, and communion table that, that the people sitting at a table across from each other, first of all, fit around the table, and second of all, know each other like people who sit around a table together. And so mm-hmm. we've, just, we've just committed to the idea, even when it's stretched us, when we, like this recent congregation that we've started, it's younger brothers and sisters and and um, for the most part, there's one older brother in that congregation, but it's a stretch that we weren't ready to make, but we didn't mm-hmm. fit anymore. And you have to. And I think that's the those are the kinds of decisions that where the church has failed in the past when it's a hard decision to make and we don't feel like we're ready to do it. And it's stretching us at our levels of comfort. And it's easy to say, well, let's just go rent a space and we'll all fit. But but there's a principle in line that we're trying to stay true to that says, no, that's not what how the church the church is supposed to have a heartbeat. Every every communion table is supposed to have this this real authentic family sitting around. it, And so it requires being stretched when we're, we don't feel like we're ready to be stretched yet. Yeah. So you guys in Boston are, are trying to return to that sort of a model. Um, but these groups throughout history, like the Waldensians and the Anabaptists, they were forced into that model by persecution, right? Or did they yeah. kind of intentionally seek it out? 
Well, I think, you know, if you think of, of Conor Grable and Felix Muntz and George Blaurock in a room talking about how what they're going to do with the problems with Zwingli and, and, and deciding to go out on, on illegal preaching campaigns and illegal baptizing campaigns, that's necessarily in the shadows. And so mm -hmm. I think their meetings are styled that way because of necessity. Now, what's interesting is that I think for a long time, those people keep that kind of uh, home home style for quite a while. Now, I don't I don't know my later Anabaptist history very well. I don't know when they switched to meeting houses. And I, I would I would assume that maybe the Swiss who were more wealthy were were more prone to that meeting house style of meeting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So uh, but but I know that. For the early Anabaptists, for the beginnings of that movement, it was certainly persecution and having to hide in the shadows that caused them to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, we, th this conversation has kind of gone toward, you know, meeting in the homes as one of the primary ways to restore that close fellowship. What do you think about, you know, sort of the house church movement in general? I mean, there's often a stigma attached mm -hmm. to the term house church, so that it's a bunch of people who were hurt in the institutional church and they all get together to lick their wounds and have really funky doctrine and that sort of thing. So as you look out over that movement, um, do you see a lot, some positive things or is it mostly negative? What do you think about that? Well, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the stigma around the idea of house church as a movement. I, 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 um, I make a distinction between churches that meet in houses and house churches. Okay. Um, out west, you know, there's a lot of that house church mentality, and, and I'm very familiar with it. And what what is what often goes along with the house church movement is kind of like a, a lack of cohesion. Like a lot of those house church models are never going to have a bishop, they're never going to have deacons, they're never going to have governance or discipline, or it's very difficult to determine. You know, the meetings are very. Um, not just egalitarian, but unfocused and undisciplined. It's just, it's, I call them fellowship meetings, not church meetings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who's going to preach? Well, we don't know. Nobody's responsible. I don't know what's going to happen next week. Should we meet at this time or that time? Like that kind of very loose style. Now, mm -hmm. I think that, that people are, 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 um, pulled to that movement because they're frustrated with the opposite. They're frustrated with the, preacher is pope hierarchical structures in the evangelical church that there's this kind of like top-down pyramid scheme in the church and and it's mm -hmm. disconnected and people don't really know each other and so we end up in this kind of like opposite ditches i think mm -hmm. there's a way to walk the middle where we're actually trying to properly be churches with government with doctrine and practice with discipline with discipleship and, and leadership, all these things, but we're keeping it small and in homes and in, in, and I shouldn't, it's, I don't, I don't want to overplay the home aspect. We actually have one of our congregations that does meet in a building, but it's okay. still a very small group of people. And I think that's the point is to keep it small. When I look at the, when I look at the early churches and you have the church in Rome or the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus or the church in Colossae, I think the structure is that you have a group of bishops with a larger group of deacons over a large network of house churches across the urban area. 
So, you know, there's the church in the house of Stephanus and probably the church in the house of Philip and the church in the house of Matthew and the church in the house of Titus. And you have deacons that are connecting all the logistical and practical needs between those house churches and a group of bishops who travel back and forth between them and, and, and have meetings with people and try to keep things in order and supervise what's happening and try to keep the church going in a consistent direction. That's the structure that I envision about the early church, and there's some. I think there's some good reasons to think that that was the the old model, and and I think it's it's a feasible structure for the future. I think it's the way. Like think about what the just the just the logistical implications of changing our church model, where we don't meet in a steeple house, where we do have a real church, we do have real connections, but we're meet, we don't have all that overhead, like. What, like in Boston, for instance, how are we going to own a building like what for eight million dollars a building <laughs> yeah. in Boston for all the church to meet in? That doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. Why should we spend eight million dollars on that when we can just meet? We have zero overhead here. It doesn't mm-hmm. cost us anything to have church. We just meet in homes. Yeah, so, it, it keeps so your a- leaders don't get your leaders don't get any kind of payment. They, they don't support. No, we don't have paid ministry. I I have mixed feelings about that. I don't actually think it's wrong for the church to give their ministers to provide for them in some ways. I, I think there, you know, if I could have my cake and eat it too, I would have some like kind of partial paid ministry. So I think mm-hmm. it makes sense to have someone whose job it is to watch over the church and take care of it. I don't think that's a wrong thing. I think Paul makes plenty of mention about the possibility for the church to do that. We don't yeah. here. We don't. We don't have. For, for us, just for full disclosure, we don't have ordained bishops or deacons yet. We do have ordained church planters. Um, mm. And I think that's a church growth model and strategy that we're intentional about. You know, we feel like if you look at the apostolic pattern of how churches begin, they start with apostles. An apostle comes into a place, a church planter comes into a place and starts a new Christian community. And then he has some some primary responsibilities. It's his job to found that new Christian community in in doctrine and practice. He's supposed to connect the disparate churches that wouldn't otherwise be connected. He mm-hmm. weighs in on disciplinary matters, and he establishes future leadership for that community. But he very often he leaves, and that church exists leaderless for some time, in fact, some years in, in the mm-hmm. Pauline examples. So these new Christian communities are... They're having the Eucharist week by week. They're meeting. They're preaching to each other. They're making disciples. They're baptizing people. They're meeting each other's needs. They're dealing with conflict resolution. All this stuff is happening as a functioning Christian community without any bishops or deacons. And then the first thing you see added, like, so go back to Jerusalem. You have the 12 apostles. The next step is deacons. And the deacons, because as the church begins to grow, you have these logistic concerns and needs. And that's the phase that the Boston church is in now. Like, now with four congregations, there's all these, like, it's cumbersome to not have somebody whose job it is to make sure that the logistic matters are being met and, and figured out. So then you then you fulfill the logistic needs with, with deacons. And then the last step is bishops who are supposed to be well-trained already in their ministries, in conflict resolution, and how to handle the Word of God, and how to deal with people, how to raise their families. And that's the last phase of church development. Now, that's an uncommon theory. At least I, I don't hear many people talking of church development that way. 
but it's a theory that I think the the Acts actually teaches. It actually shows by example that that's the model of how churches should grow. And if they grow that way, they're much more prone to have these family style relationships within them because people are working out life and ministry in this kind of like non top down structured way. What about elders? Is, is that ship and elder would be the same word. Okay. Synonymous. Okay. It's the same Greek word. No, there's, there's three, there's three different words that are used in Greek, but they're used synonymously like different mm-hmm. passages. will use them as synonyms of each other. So would you envision each house church having a specific bishop slash elder? No, not necessarily. I think you need a small number of bishops for a whole city's worth of churches. So I would imagine maybe in the next 10 to 15 years, maybe we have three to five bishops over the Boston church and then maybe five to seven deacons and then, I don't know, 20 or 30 house churches. So there would need to be people within each house church who sort of can facilitate the meetings but don't necessarily have a title? Yeah. And we've already been functioning that way for years here. Yeah. And would you envision the bishops sort of choosing who the teachers are, or would the teachers kind of organically rise to the top? Or I mean, I, not the top. But. I, ideally, teachers rise out of their giftings. You know, you, mm-hmm. you because it's a much more democratized process, you can figure out as a small group of brothers and sisters who is capable to do what. And that's kind of like, that's the natural building up of the church, that pieces mm-hmm. fall in place. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not conflict or problems that come up or controversies, and that's what the deacons and bishops would be there for, to help resolve those things when they come up. But each mm-hmm. of these house churches should be competent and capable. I mean, we're talking about people who are the sons of God. Like, they're capable of teaching each other and praying together and working through ministry and how to make disciples. The bishops mm-hmm. and deacons, the elders and deacons, should be there just to offer support and keep things going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Let's keep going down this trail a little bit longer. Can you walk me through uh, your church meetings? Uh, how, how does sure. that look? What, what activities do you actually participate in? Yeah, so like I said, we meet in homes, um, and our ho- the homes where we meet are usually community clusters. So in, in our original community in, in Medford, there's a two-family home and a one-family home on the same property, and then there's several f- couples and people and single people who live in that neighborhood. And so we have one meeting space in one of the homes has a big living room. Um, The church meets together in the early afternoon, just with the communing congregants. So the people that are in communion together. Mm -hmm. And we call that um, our agape meal. It's the love Mm -hmm. feast from the early church. And so we have a meal together. All the children and families are there. We sit and have fellowship and talk about either important church matters or just in personal matters, whatever's going on. It's that time, that family meal connection time. And mm-hmm. as a part of that meal, then we 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 have a, a an intentional time where we share the Eucharist. And that includes either one of the brothers will share a teaching. Uh, we go around and share, confess any sins or talk about any needs that we have. Or, or share, you know, some victory or some praise to God for something that's happening. Um, there's singing that happens in those meals sometimes. And then we, sh- we bless the bread. We have unleavened bread, as the scriptures indicate, and, and wine. And we bless, the, we bless the bread, we bless the cup, and we pass it around. Mm-hmm. After that, that's, we meet, uh, most of our congregations meet at 2 in the afternoon on Sunday mm-hmm. for that. After that, at 4.30, we have a public meeting. 
and that's where friends of the church, people that are interested in the church, people we've been ministering to or sharing with come. And then uh, that's where we have singing and preaching like you'd be used to in a typical a typical meeting. But then after that, we have another fellowship meal with all those people. Um, now, the thing about that is that the thing about meeting in homes, and sometimes it's considered a liability, is people say, well, people aren't comfortable. You can't ask somebody to come to church in a home. But see, the, the, the problem with that idea is that the Assembly of the Saints isn't an evangelistic meeting. It's not intended to be yeah. them. And so you don't get an, an invite to one of our meetings unless you're already like a vetted seeker, unless you're somebody that sat at my table or that I've met for coffee or a neighbor that I've been talking to. By the time people come to one of our meetings as, as an invited guest, they already have had conversations with somebody in the church about who we are and why we are and what we are. And mm -hmm. so then, then if, if that's intriguing to them and they keep coming, then we try to draw them further and further into the heart of the church. Okay. So this model of having sort of two separate meetings with different purposes, is this something that the early church also did, or is this something you just chose to do because of expediency? Well, it, there were two parts to the meeting. There was, um, in fact, the, the old Latin words of, of mass or missal come from when they would dismiss any visitors from the meeting, and it was the time just for the Eucharist for those who were communing members of the church. It's, it's important to me to distinguish why that should be. Um, another, another major benefit of the way that we, we do church here is that the central focus of why we get together as God's people on Sunday is to sit at Jesus's table with him as a family. And that's a very different focus to me than the focus of going to a meeting on Sunday to hear someone preach. And I love preaching, and I'm a preacher, and I, I love hearing my brothers expound the Word of God. It's one of my favorite things. But for us, that's secondary. It's a long way secondary. The reason we come together is to share the Eucharist together, to confess our sins, to be the family of God together, and to sit at Jesus' table. That's the main focus. If you ask me why does why do the Christians meet on Sunday, it's to sit at a table and have the Eucharist together with God's family. Mm -hmm. That is a very, very different focus. No matter mm -hmm. how good the preaching is, it's an entirely different pursuit to want to go hear someone expound the scriptures than mm -hmm. want to have that intimate encounter with the church. And yeah. so we keep that at the center focus of why we're coming together as a church. Mm. How long is that first meeting usually? Like how long About are you around? Two and a half hours. Two and a half? Yeah. We meet at oh, two wow. meetings at four. And a lot of times we're trying to finish things up to be able to get to that public meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let's let's talk about some other ways that followers of Jesus can establish these close connections with each other besides you know, church structure or church leadership? What are some other things that we can pursue? Geographical proximity is one of the most important factors. Now, I, I stop short of saying it's a necessary factor. What, mm -hmm. what I say is that the, the greater the, the distance, the more work to, mm -hmm. to, to have some sense of community and relationship. So if I'm living, I, I, ideally especially with people that I'm communing with, I want to be in a short walk's distance so that I have that kind of familiarity and accessibility. Mm -hmm. 
say exhort one another daily and so much the more as the day approaches like the ability to have daily contact with the saints is what i think we should all be striving for now that's very very difficult especially in in the boston metro area if we're i mean if i have to go seven miles that can take me an hour and a half depending on what time of day it is Mm -hmm. so like how how close do we want to be and I think it's hard to imagine ways, and, and maybe there are more opportunities now in a technological age with my ability to have this meeting with you in Virginia and me in Massachusetts. We have advantages and opportunities that maybe our, our older brothers and forefathers didn't have, but, but it's not the same. And, I, and here's the important thing about community to me. The most important... Um, life-changing and dramatic events that have happened in my Christianity in the last, I'll say, 10 to 15 years have been unplanned experiences with God's people. Like my ability to be, to pass, to cross paths with my brother in the driveway in the neighborhood and or our children get together at a park and sit and talk or having a meal together and just happen to have a conversation about something that ends up changing my mind or convicting me or an opportunity to share something that's going on. That unplanned Christianity is the most, one of the most important parts of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we can provide space for that, the healthier a Christian community we become. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about the idea of having all things in common, like the Hutterites and even the the church in Acts? Yeah. Yeah, well, okay, so if if I look at Acts, I think that um, what's important about what's happening in Acts to me, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, is that as, as the Holy Ghost is getting a hold of these people— it, one of the one of the byproducts, one of the symptoms of having a transformed life is that I take on a new relation to my possessions. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus was talking so much about our possessions and how we deal with, with these kinds of matters. Yeah. And so the fact that when people become Christians, they have a new relationship to their possessions should not be surprising. And and it's not. They they take on a new understanding of, of right and responsibility in regards to personal property um, in the transaction of becoming Christians. So that's notable and, and an important thing to consider. How that functions, you know, when I think when I think about what's happening in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, it's it's hard for me to envision. So let's just think of the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter two. We have we have somewhere between three and five thousand saints in in the Jerusalem church right off the bat within the first I don't know year. Um, and I, I it's hard for me to imagine that week by week everyone is taking whatever they garner and taking it all to one central storehouse, and there the apostles or the deacons eventually are parceling out daily provisions for all those thousands of people. What Mm -hmm. I think is a much more sensible way to look at the distribution network of Acts is that people, people take care of themselves, their own household and needs, and what's left over is what gets laid at the apostles' feet for distribution to those who don't have. Okay. That simplifies the structure quite a bit, and that mm-hmm. becomes a much more feasible thing. And then you can see why why there's a dis- 
dispute about the Gentile widows versus the, the Jewish women and people not feeling like people are getting their share. So that and then that's where our, deacon, our first deacons in Jerusalem come from. So this idea is that I meet my family's household needs and then that which is left over, that which I don't have need of, that becomes a part of a distribution network to meet people's needs who can't meet them themselves. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of different ways to do that. The Hutterites have applied one model, which which is generally referred to as the common purse, and mm-hmm. it works well. You know, I, I've I've been friends with several different Hutterites over over the last decade or so. Um, there was a lot of them in a lot of people who had come from Hutterite background in some of my in, in one of the churches I was a part of in particular, and uh, and now there's uh, actually the sister that lives that I share a house with comes from a Hutterite colony. So I'm pretty familiar with how things work there, and there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about the the value of that of their common purse structure. I think there's also some some criticism. So the valid things are they they it works very well. So they they don't have need. They it, it is an efficient way to live. Like mm-hmm. everybody lives to a good standard of living in in the colonies. Um, you don't have, you know, people, one person who has too much and somebody who doesn't know how they're going to put food in their children's mouths. That just doesn't happen. It's, it's, it doesn't happen. So it's been very effective in regards to that. You know, the Hutterite history, what happened with Jacob Hutter and the original Hutterite movement is that as persecution was drawing people out of Germany, all these persecuted people ended up in the Tyrol Valley and Jacob Hutter was there. And he was reviewing these these scriptures and acts and thought, well, this is our answer. Everybody's coming here disheveled and impoverished, and none of us know how we're going to live through the winter. Mm-hmm. So, but we're going to have all things in common, and we're going to we're going to do it this way. And it, it was an effective technique. They were able to make places for all these fleeing people who were running away from persecution. So it worked mm-hmm. quite well to meet those needs. Now, the liability of the system is that without, without some sort of ownership over property, people lose connection with how to control their impulse. In other words, if I'm going to give to the poor, I have mm-hmm. to have something that's mine to give. Yeah, and right. I think that gets deferred a lot in the Hutterite common purse model is that, well, I don't have anything. Nothing is mine. So I don't feel any obligation when I meet a man. Well, it, I don't think Hutterites are in town enough to meet men living homeless on the street by and large. But if he was, if he was to have a homeless man come up to him and say, can you help me? He doesn't have anything because nothing is literally his own. There's another idea about property, I think, that's closer to the heart of Acts. You know, when Ananias and Sapphira have their issues with Peter, their showdown with Peter, he says, were these things not yours? Like, you didn't have to do this. There's no compulsion about giving to the church. It was yours to give. And, and, and I think in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the real problem is the lying and probably the lying for the sake of prestige in the church that, that mm-hmm. causes the real transgression against the Holy Ghost. But the fact that Peter says to them, these things were yours, like there's no Peter isn't making expectation that you can't have anything. He, he's just making an expectation he can't lie about it. So when you go back in the Old Testament and we look at how how the how the Israel theocracy is set up, where there's a civil religious structure that's founded by God himself, what you have is this modified personal property. 
So I can own a field, but God has expectations about how I deal with my personal property. In other words, I can't, I can't, um, I, I can't harvest the corners of my field. I'm going to go mm -hmm. in a circle with my ox and my plow, and I can only go through it once. And whatever's left is for the poor. So there's a built-in social security network into the Israel theocracy that that modifies personal property. It's mine, but God has expectations about how I deal with it. And I think that's an indicator of how we should, as the church, be looking at these possession issues as they relate to each other and to the world at large, that, that personal property seems like a justifiable idea, but that personal property should be held under convictions about how I deal with those things as a conscientious Christian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, as we wrap up here, are there any things we missed, any other ingredients that the modern church in the West needs to restore this kind of koinonia fellowship? I think we've hit on a lot of those things, but maybe the heart of it is that word koinonia. I was fascinated to learn that the word koinonia, which is, is often translated fellowship, like the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ is the koinonia of the sufferings of Christ, but what I learned, and here's a here's a great book if if anyone's interested. There's a book uh, called Faith and Wealth by Justo Gonzalez. Justo Gonzalez wrote the story of Christianity. It's used in a lot of seminary history programs. Um, that book, Faith and Wealth, deals with this issue of koinonia quite a bit. And he he actually shows in first century like business contracts, like if you and I bought a fishing boat together as a fishing business in Galilee we would write up the contract that you and I had koinonia in the boat. We were partners together. It's not just fellowship. It's not like good feelings and spending time together. It's partners. So that's a very different. If I read that, if I read that koinonia, partnership with the sufferings of Christ is different than like a fellowship meal with the sufferings of Christ. Like I feel good about them and I, and we're around each other. This is saying we're partners together. And I think that's the heart of what the church should be doing, is that we should be partners together in life, in the gospel, and in eternity. And, and be able to say, like our first fathers, that if we're heirs together of the grace of life, how much more the things of this earth. For sure. Well, thanks a lot for sharing your thoughts. Uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. All right. Thanks, Titus. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of That Jesus Podcast. The music on this podcast was created by my friend Kyle Squilloff. You can find more of his beats by searching for Captive Music on SoundCloud. See you next time.